Welcome to the Grit and Grace space. Come along as we explore experiences, cultivate community, and grow our appetite for adventure. Here we go. Welcome back to the Grit and Grace space. Tonight, Alexander and I sat down and talked through an event we just went to with Emery. It was called the Pathway to the C-Suite, and I get into all of the details in the podcast and what some of our takeaways were. Throughout this discussion, we intermingled our takeaways from the event with some things that we see at work and our takes on how those things are going. And I hope it's interesting for you guys. It's definitely, this is like a peek into what 85% of our conversations look like, where it's mostly just talking about work outside of work. And for better or for worse, that's how things have been lately. I highly recommend sticking through the whole hour of the podcast, maybe even playing the podcast on 1.5 or two times speed because at the end we get into some whiskey drama and Alexander goes off on all of the opportunity that Heaven Hill has and all of the things that they're doing wrong with Elijah Craig. So if any of those (laughs) words mean anything to you, stick around. It's fascinating to hear him talk through all of the opportunities there are with the whiskey market in general, I'll say. So brilliant mind at work, saved for the end. We made sure to capture a whiskey minute for this podcast. I will pause there and we'll get to the good stuff. together on the microphone. I'm here with Mr. Rao mm-hmm. and little Disco. She's being a sweet girl. But we, I asked Alexander to sit down with me to reflect on this event that we went to this past weekend with Emery. And the event was called Pathway to the C-Suite, meaning like CEO, CFO, CMO, like that kind of C-suite. So the way that the event was set up, there's a cocktail hour for all of the class of 2024, class of 2025 executive MBA students. And we mingled and chatted and the speakers were there and the dean of the business school was there and of course the dean of the executive biz, uh, MBA program was there and we hung out for a little bit had some cocktails and then well beer and wine I guess and then went to this other conference room that was set up like a audience and a panel and there were four panelists and the dean of the business school had a bunch of questions to ask the panelists and then there were some questions from the audience as well but the individuals on the panel were different i guess they were all ceos kind of ceos one was from the medical field one was from i guess she like left disney and went to japanese more entertainment yeah like an entertainment type of company and but I guess she lived in Shanghai. And another person was had, had like an accounting background, but he was the CEO of that firm that I guess does auditing. I don't know. And then a much older gentleman who, he must have been like mid-70s. Yeah, not 70 quite yet, because he was born in 1959. Right, anyway. But he just had, you know twice as much experience as everybody else on the stage and 
talk through just, I don't know, a bunch of different things to get their feedback, their perspectives on how to navigate different challenges. So that was the event as a whole. And so I was reflecting this morning on some of my takeaways from the event. And I asked Alexander if he would sit down with me and talk through some of his takeaways as well. So I will ask you what were your, like, what was your thoughts like going into the event? And then like, what was your takeaways high level from the event as a whole? Yeah, I think my thoughts going in were we have decent access to people, maybe not the C-suite level, but the executive level. And for a company that like as big as ours, it's, they're pretty high up, I think, relatively. So I didn't expect to hear a lot of things I didn't already know, but I think it is interesting to get a different perspective, different company. You don't, I mean, the, the questions went on for like maybe two hours, so you don't usually get two hours of straight kind of mentoring. You might get half hour blocks. And so it was a lot of information all at once kind of, but I thought it was really good. It was very beneficial. People have a wealth of experience and knowledge. So I enjoyed it a lot. I didn't take notes like you, so I don't have any specific takeaways, but I thought maybe two, two of the people had like really great advice and were very interesting. And so I enjoyed them a lot. Yeah. I wanted to bring my notebook, but (laughs) <laughs> it's like so awkward carrying around my notebook in my in my bag the whole evening, but I'm glad that I captured what I did. I looked over and I saw Earl was taking notes and like, okay, mm-hmm. Earl's taking notes, like I can be a nerd and, and take notes in my little journal here. Earl. What did you say? You said Earl. What did I say? Earl. How do you say it? Errol. Errol? Is that different than how the name's normally pronounced? I don't know. You, you pronounce like E-A-R-L, Earl, but it's yeah. Errol, E-R-R-O-L. I'm sorry, Errol. Okay, so I had four major takeaways from the feedback, and I'll, like, explain what they all are, and then we can maybe, like, go through them one by one and then see if any of these spark your memory. But at a, the top four takeaways... My top four takeaways from the event was, were number one, be in service to others. Number two, take care of yourself and advocate for yourself. Number three was God's perfect timing. Also, I wrote down like, do not fear. And not that any one of the four people talked about, you know, like religion at all or divine timing but that's kind of a takeaway that I had from you know reflecting on some of the things that they did talk about and then number four was the importance of soft skills developing soft skills considering soft skills and conversations with people something that definitely does not come natural to me so those are my big four do any one of those spark anything for you joy I think her name Yes, we'll put in the in the podcast links like the bios of the four speakers, the woman, three gentlemen, one woman. Her name was Joy. She was from Shanghai and works for the enter- entertainment, not That's entertainment. Me. I don't know. Anyway, She's, animation. Yeah, she said I think two things. I connected with with her a lot. I think she had a lot of really interesting things to say. But she talked about building allies a lot and about how how a lot of her co-workers and peers and, and managers and people reported to her were asked for their opinion about her when when she was interviewing for new jobs and and those people really can make a difference in like you moving up. So that was huge and I think I think about that more and more about trying to build relationships with people and Things like that. So, and the other one was about developing your people. She talked a little bit about that, about, and other people did too. They asked them, I think, what the best part of your job is, the most challenging part of your job. And I think people, like a lot of people said people for both of them. So they, it's really rewarding when, when you have a team and you build people on your team and they're successful and you're pulling them up with you is great, but also it can be really challenging to have conversations. You know, she was talking about how she, you know, hired X amount of people and promoted X amount of people and fired X amount of people. And she knew the stats off the top of her head, which was, which was incredible. So making the hard decisions and 
in the right time to give feedback and the right way to give feedback was kind of a, a topic that came up. So I think that's really tough. So I think I've been thinking about that a lot, like how to give that feedback and what what things are factual feedback versus preferential and having people also build some skills, you know, saying, hey, I know you can solve this problem in Excel, but I want to see you solve it in PowerPoint. It's like a dumb example, but ultimately I think it's about, I, yeah, I want to see people like get to an answer and some of those people don't care how they got to the answer, but I think also stressing them outside of their comfort zone and saying, I know you can get the answer through this method, but I want to see you get there other ways because maybe there's other tools to do the job and you should be familiar with the other tools to make you like a well-rounded individual. And I think people don't always understand that. Yeah, that was something that James sort of reflected on. James was the much older gentleman who had, you know, seen everything upside down, inside out, out four times. But he was at a point in his career, he was leading like 3,000 people and the organization made a decision to move him into an individual contributor role. And he was very, like, offended and insulted. And it probably was, like, an intentional, like, demotion type of a situation. But he was sharing this experience with us and said that his mentor, his leader at the time, was like, don't you see what they're trying to do? They know that you can lead with authority. They want to see you lead with influence. And that, I guess, leads into, I don't know, what one of the takeaways was it's not always, like, obviously it's not always about you, but people are going to challenge you in ways that are extremely uncomfortable. And even though it feels like, you know, I'm better than this or I should be here, I should be there, like, be, like, grow where you're, where you're planted and, you know, try to have tunnel vision while also thinking long-term. I don't know. That's a run-on sentence, but... Yeah, I've been leading with influence, I think, a lot recently. And... That's my whole job. And I was frustrated (laughs) for a long time about how much time it took. It takes so much time. I'm not saying it's bad. Obviously, you'd like things to happen faster. When you have a team, you can just tell them what to do. Like, sometimes. You tell them what projects to work on. You can guide how they work the project, but... I try and let them have a lot of ownership, but I found it not so much hard, but more just exhausting yes. to try and lead with influence. And I know I can do it and I've been successful doing it, but, but man, it takes a lot of work. And sometimes I'm lazy and I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to put the work in. I want people to just do it. And there's just no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to lead with influence, I think. And I've been learning that and continue to learn that. I've been... We have a lot of work to do on that in the next like few months. So it's been a journey. Yeah, I feel like that's my that's been my job for the last two years is the only way that I can progress my deliverables is getting other people who don't report to me, who live in, you know, report to five or six different facilities to work for me, basically. And I don't have any say in their merit. I mean, of course, I'm, like, very outspoken when things go well or when, you know, help is needed. But it it is exhausting because what, like, the right thing to do is to set up one-on-ones with these 50 engineers monthly to develop them, like, at a personal level and really get to know them and care about them. And not to say that, like not to manipulate them and like, you know, make them think that you care about them so they'll do stuff for you, but just building out that network is exhausting, but it reaps benefits because you're able to communicate with them on a more intimate level and then like the efficiencies gain in the long run. Yeah, I don't know how I think our organization a little bit off topic, but says that you can manage like twelve people like as a people leader. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that number is insanely high to me. Like, how in the world, you know, are you actively developing people, developing your program, you know, giving advice, setting priorities, following up on work? Like, I, I just don't think you can do it. I don't think it's crazy. Like, six to me would be, and maybe I spend the right or more, too much time with people, but like, 12 people is too much. Well, I think you're going to have the distribution of, 
you know, top performers, people like the twenty percent of people who take eighty percent of your time, and then yeah, the middle ground. So I don't know if twelve is. I don't know. I mean, they were saying, but if you spend half an hour with these person, that's six hours a week. You know what I mean? And yeah, you got a 40, 45 hour week, but there's other team sync meetings and there's other like losses that occur and just start out the week six hours in the hole and you, and all you've done is touch base on like the status of things, not even gone to the level of, hey, okay, so you got a problem, now we need to set another meeting to, to like solve it. I mean, I, I, I spend almost all day Wednesday just statusing effectively. Like I burn a whole day a week just statusing and I have five people. So I don't know, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but yeah, it's just tough. So now imagine you've got to also do some influencing outside of that. And like, all your time's gone. That's how it would connect the ideas, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, how often does your boss have one-on-ones with you, though? It's not every week. Never. <laughs> okay. Well, my Is boss... Is that the right, ha- right answer? You no, know what I mean? no, I was just curious. Yeah. Um, like, my boss has one-on-ones with her team every three weeks and then of course if there's like something going on outside of that you know you set up so every three weeks the right cadence though i don't know because she sets 30 minute sessions and i think i've just gotten lucky the last few but like we end up talking for 90 minutes yeah so that's what i'm saying though like you need that time i know so how many you can't give it Right, so that the it's broken. It's way too. People think about the org being deep as being like annoying, but I think you get if you put the right leaders in place and they're growing and they're pulling their people up, it's actually a great. You get more one on one time. Yeah, and you can actually grow versus like oh, talk down to my next appointment. Yeah, I think there's the risk of silos though. Like the deeper an organization is, the more silos there are. I think so a little bit, but. We're way off topic. People never, they never, like, they get stuck somewhere and, like, never grow. It's, I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily, like, I think 12 is too many is what I'm trying to say. I think maybe 8 is, like, they would be tough. Anyway. I think it just depends on what you are tasked with as an organization and as an individual. When, like, the leaders are tasked with pretty technical initiatives, it's a lot harder to be an adequate people leader. And so I, I think it just, what's the right balance and how do you, going back to like one of the takeaways, advocate for yourself in an objective way that, you know, you're able to be effective, but also still, you know, meet the business needs. Like that's a delicate conversation because it could come across that like, you know, better, which maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I don't know. It could be sensitive. So one of, I guess, going to that second point there, like take care of yourself and advocate for yourself. Two people talked about, I don't even know what question, I don't remember what question was asked for this to be the answer, but the person who is like the medical CEO had an acronym STEER, sleep, time and thought, eat, exercise, and read, and then joy the female CEO who is on the panel talked about how she prioritizes sleeping seven hours a night. She swims every single morning and she eats well. And the, both of these people talk about how those filling up your own cup is a priority in order to be effective at work and for your teams. And also the thought on what, what will you do and what will you not do? So, do you have any thoughts on that? I think that was more about, like, there's two conversations about, as the CEO, you get to just choose what situations you want to insert yourself into. So, you get to choose where your time is allocated. Yeah. And I think even as a manager, in a lot of ways, you do as well. So, my team has, you know, lots of meetings and projects and full calendars, and I, I get to pick where I want to influence and what I think is important and I go spend my time there and I use that as a coaching opportunity for them sometimes. So what are your thoughts on like the self-care aspect of it? But I think self-care is, is big. I think coming to work prepared and zoned in is huge. I think it can make a big difference. There's people that are locked in and they remember stuff and you can tell they're just 
really engaged. I think that's, you can be far more productive. I don't know. Different people in different amounts of sleep, but an exercise is different for everybody, but I think, I think they're a good place to start eating healthy. Yeah, one of the panelists described it as deliberate harmony, and I think I talked about this on maybe one of the first podcasts, but like eliminating the word balance because that assumes things are equal, and in contrast, moving in the direction of deliberate harmony where, you know, sometimes you're really going to have to grind for a period of time, but making sure that you don't get stuck in that grind for so long that it becomes your new like base level because that's not necessarily healthy and you know you have diminishing returns so deliberate harmony of choosing when to overextend and when to pull back I thought that was really concise way to think about it so how do you find harmony in your work day or in your work week I don't know I think I don't have good harmony really right now. I'd like to just take like a more defined lunch. I think I'd be a lot more productive after lunch probably. I'd like to sit with people and chat about stuff. I think it would really help. I think we're already so siloed just because we fit in a different area and I insert myself where I want to insert myself. But I would like to sit with like engineers more during lunch and other people and spend that time understanding what the problems are and getting to know them and build those relationships. That's one of those things that you need to do. But it's like, I think I can sit at my desk and like just finish a few, like I can do 45 minutes of other work and that feels efficient, but in the short run, maybe, but long run, maybe not, you know, depending how, on what you want to do. How outside of work do you find harmony? I don't know. I don't, I don't really think about it that way, I guess. Just been coming home earlier because of school, but I think about work at home some. But I don't know, just relaxing on the weekend is the main thing I need to reset and go back energized. Oh my gosh. So we'll move up to the first bullet, the be in service to others. Oftentimes, well, I think 100% of the time leaders are get to where they are by a, a large component of how and when leaders get to be where they are is other people mentoring them and also sponsoring them. And something that all of these CEOs talked about was making sure that you're like, who are you mentoring? Who are you pouring into? How, how do you give feedback and do that in a way that's constructive? Making sure that the individual is in a headspace where they can receive the feedback you're trying to give. So those were like the sub bullets that I had, but I thought that was, it was just really like interesting to hear all four people be so passionate about this topic. Something that somebody said, one of the panelists said was with respect to soft skills, well, not with respect to soft skills, I just put it in this category, but every everybody thinks that they themselves are being logical. And I often find myself in meetings or in conversations with people and in my head, I'm like, how can you possibly think this is, this makes sense, you know? And not to say that, you know, there's probably 40% of the time, like I'm missing something huge and that's why I don't think what they said makes sense. But how do you like approaching situations where, Somebody thinks that they're being logical, like most people aren't trying to, you know, do the wrong thing, but sometimes they're not logical. (laughs) How do you deal with that? My thoughts? I I don't know. I think I've tried also more and more to put myself in someone else's shoes and assume they're doing their best and they're trying to come up with the best solution and maybe their incentives aren't aligned with your incentives. And so I was in a meeting today and I was, I just kind of came out and said like, you know, I'm, I'm helping to design a problem for this, a solution for this problem. And this is the, what I'm optimizing for. This is what I'm solving for. I'm solving for, you know, output and productivity. And there are lots of other things to consider here, but like that's the angle I'm coming from. And I think it helps for people to understand where you're coming from. What are you optimizing for? Because there's lots of variables. 
and assume they're trying their best and that they've thought about a lot of, you know, they've come up with a lot of relevant ideas too. And they're probably just coming from a different place than you are and it's good just to tell them what you're thinking, you know. I think, I think it's good. It helps just to get it out there. Do you ever find yourself, you know, laying it all out there, like, this is going through my head, this is why I'm want to move in this direction and then you're just met with like silence i don't know about silence people sometimes just or people just shut down i think sometimes they shut down but maybe they need time to process and i, I try and i try not to to go so hard like right out of the gate try to get to them a little bit of a t- at a time you know yeah you also have the luxury of being usually, in person you're just not prepared to have like this really you know in-depth conversation about this topic like you come prepared because you want to talk about it a lot of times they're not prepared you know and you give them all these ideas they're like huh wow that's a lot and they're like i disagree and you're like why and they're just not ready to to discuss it yet so i try and ease my way into it say hey how could we increase productivity could we make this a little change you know versus hey i want to re redo the whole the whole thing i want to blow it all up it's too much for people. I think fundamentally I just don't have the right amount of patience. For what? For soft skills. It takes so much. And people still get annoyed, I think. It takes a lot of empathy, and for whatever reason, I don't have empathy. I think, like, I'm, I'm a very much, like, all-or-nothing person, and if I decide I'm going to be all-in, then... I'm kind of one track minded and, you know, working towards the mission and executing the mission. And it, it's hard for me to understand when other people like aren't, don't share that same mission. And I think it goes back to like in, aligned incentives. I think that's a fundamental disconnect across like any company, any enterprise anywhere that has a communication problem or an alignment problem. It's, the root causes and incentives. For sure. I think I think it's actually huge. We talked about a lot in leadership last semester about the way to like organize organizations. And I had kind of realized it but hadn't really hadn't thought about it a lot. But I really do think the incentive thing. I and mean, people are in what does their manager ask them to do every day? What does that manager's manager ask them to do every day? And then you come in with this other thing or a different angle on it and that's why i think it's important to come out and say this is what i'm trying to optimize for this is what i'm trying to do and people can just say oh that's not aligned with my incentives or that's not what i'm solving for that's why you have a different solution than i have and i think that helps to helps with deadlines it helps with everything like why why is why are we doing this and why do we do it by this date you know oh i'm being incentivized to complete this project by this date because of xyz i think also middle management it's very hard for them to they're in an interesting position where they're still asked to do very individual contributor type of work and also lead people, at least like what we experience. And I think that results in lack of leadership guidance, expectation setting, like what, what even are my incentives? Like some people, it's not that they aren't incentivized, like, or it's not that somebody can't be incentivized, it's that nobody's taken the time to have those conversations, those goal alignment conversations with, you know, what you do affects what I do, affects what my leadership, my organization, whatever, like tie it all the way back up to the top. I think that doesn't happen. Yeah, do you think like every org should have like KPIs basically? Yes, 100%. It's like ops gets measured on shipped parts every month out of every op basically. But it's definitely out of like ship ship parts, but you go down to the op level or whatever level you want and you can measure performance, right? But how do you measure engineering's performance? And then like what are they being like what are they being asked to do? Okay, we took a little bit of a break to let the princess roam around. So wrapping up the conversation on soft skills. I think my my biggest takeaways were everybody thinks they're being logical. So it's critical to have a common definition of success. Now, getting to a common definition of success is 
much easier said than done. And then something that Joy talked about was, like, technical skills are the table stakes for, you know, getting into the room to have the conversation about who's, like, who gets selected in secession planning, basically, and that soft skills separate the leaders. So, I guess, what are, you're just nodding your head, but do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, they should, like, yeah, Technical skills get you the interview. Soft skills get you the job. I don't know. I think I think soft skills are important, but I would act also add that like vision is important, and I think there's a lot of other things that are also really important. It's like just because you like sound good and speak good and like you're flashy, and I, I don't know if that's all like I don't know if those are soft skills necessarily, but Soft skills leading people in the wrong direction is still bad. Yeah. So I think ultimately we talked a lot in strategy class and Joy mentioned this about how important those concepts are and like leading your organization in the right direction. And you need to be able to present it in a way that people can understand and get on board with. All that's important, but you need like the right solution too. Like, so you got to bring all the pieces together, I think. And that's what's really tough for most people is they have one, two, of the skills maybe, but but they don't have all three and I'm gaining a greater and greater appreciation for that going through the MBA, especially with strategy. So far that's one of the the classes where I think people get it wrong the most. It's probably easier to look at cash flow and say this is good and this is bad. Strategy tougher, I think. And I think a lot of people get it wrong. And I think we get it wrong and I think at a site level and a Maybe not company level quite as much, but a site level for sure. And it cause a lot of problems. So that to me has become like a really important thing. When people say stuff, I'm like, actually, that's not the right definition of capability or competency or strategic advantage. They say the terms, but they, they don't mean the right thing, right. actually. And, it, and then it creates this confusing dialogue. So... Yeah, that's something that I really admire about my boss because she is so sharp on the technical and then can have a conversation in a way that, like, brings out the best in everybody. Now she's very... She's very tough. And my first impression of her was that she was, like, pretty cold. And I think that's true to a degree but I think she just does such an excellent job with being like as objective as possible and so you're not getting like the warm and fuzzy but you're also not getting like the gossip or like the opinions that are critical to like I don't do a very good job of that but I think it's important to not let that be seen like as especially as you go higher in the organization I'm sure I'm tracking like what you're saying your point is that you should be cold? No. What's your point? I'm saying that my first impression is that she's very cold. And it was a little bit off-putting. But the more I work with her, the more I get to know her. Like, it's not that she's deliberately being cold. She's just not being... She's looking at the facts. Yes. Yeah, I think there, I think there could be more of that. I think a lot of people get swayed by these ideas. They get pitched and glamorous and wonderful mm-hmm. and there's not enough like poking and prodding it like the assumptions or like how you really gonna get this done people's track record what they're committing god we just like really spend a lot of times on the wrong, a lot of time on the wrong things and it's frustrating but i think that yeah that's something that we'll have to change top down as well as bottom up because when you have you know the senior leader for operations asking, you know, and four level technical details, it's like, what are we doing? You know, we're wasting like a lot of, this is a very expensive phone call to have. Yeah, maybe it's like pressure testing though. Like maybe he's making sure that it's all, it's all good. Like what if you asked a question like that and the person like didn't know the assumption was poor? Because we're trying to figure out what you think. 
Yeah, yes. I think that is opportunity then for whoever's presenting the data to, like, back it up and, like, make sure it's right, you know, so that you're answering whatever questions that don't even have to be asked then. Yeah. I'm sure there's a concise way to address it, though. Yeah. If you're the one that's getting prodded on something, like, I think you got to be able to shut it down. Right. You know? Yeah. Okay, so the last takeaway, somebody, I think it was Joy, who, I think what she said was, don't be afraid. Like, you, you belong here, meaning, like, at those, you belong in the C-suite. So she's holding herself back. She wasn't sure if she could do it, right? So she spent seven years going sideways Mm -hmm. when she would have had the faith in herself to take the leap. She could have done it probably. She was ready other than her talking herself into being ready. Yeah. She had all the other skills. It was a matter of just confidence. I think and finally made the jump. But Yeah, I... When everybody was talking through how they, like, the point in time from when they went to whatever their prior role was to being the chief executive officer of whatever it is, like, they're the top dog, like, the timing of that. And my takeaway from, like, listening to all of them speak was, like, it's God's perfect timing. And I, especially this past, you know, the past 12 months, I've been, like, very frustrated in the role that I was in, basically, like, my, I felt that my responsibility didn't match my labor grade, and, not, like, you know, things corrected, I guess, in November, where that alignment was made, but I guess looking back at, I don't know, this, none of this is making sense, but it's hard to have patience in the moment, I guess. Is what I'm trying to get to. I think in the moment it feels like it's taking forever. And you look back and you're like, wow, that all happened really fast. Yeah. Right. So it's tough. You get a role for a year and a half or two years, start to get antsy, I think. And we want a little more. We get a little, we get it under our belt. We want a challenge. Right. That's where I was at. And um, sometimes it's easy to take like a half or a whole step challenge. Sometimes it's not. You got to take on something totally new. What do you think you can do better to make waiting easier? Find things outside of work that take up mind share. Mm, like school? Like Well, yeah, like school. But, like, having a hobby. Like, I think another thing that I saw, like, a long way to go is just, like, putting my identity in my work. And so when one thing's not going right, it feels like the whole world is crashing down around you. And a lot of times when we go on vacation, it's really helpful to shift that perspective to, you know, have time away from work and realize like work isn't everything. So, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I think it's like a comparison thing. Cause like, I'm happy going in and doing what I'm doing. There's so, like, there's a lot of opportunity for the team when I feel like things start to plateau is when I start to get antsy. And yeah, there's another 5 or 10%. I can definitely squeak out of it. And But there's also a lot of things you can get involved in, I think, and learn more. So operations dashboarding, right? Barely, barely related to my current scope, but learning a lot, really enjoying it, and... And go seek those things out. And people almost never will tell you no, they don't want any help with something. So go find a team that's maybe related to the team you work on and go hang out with them. Go spend a couple hours with them a week, learning what they do and helping them. And help. I think that's my advice when you get a Lancy. And I think you'll be fulfilled and maybe when the right opportunity comes up, you're ready and maybe even it's related to the thing you're building into versus just like not really building your skills any and you feel like you're not growing go okay go grow go grow a half step quarter step 
in some other related role. And it'll probably be beneficial for you. I mean, I'm learning a ton right now with what I'm working on. Yeah, that's what I did last year with... It was more so born out of a problem I had where we weren't... There wasn't any sort of standard to quantify what we were experiencing. And so I just, like, took a week, locked four people in a room, and, like, we developed a standard and deployed it. And, yeah, I was born out of... Well, that was, I guess, more born out of, like, desperation of not having a solution and there not being a standard, so creating the standard yourself. But along the same lines, it's something that I was, like, very specifically passionate about, and it wasn't, you know, directly part of my roles and responsibilities, but it needed to be done for me to, like, close on those roles and responsibilities. So I wasn't going to, like, wait around for somebody else to do it. And it's, like, a control thing because I feel like I would have done it. I would have had opinions if somebody else would have tried to do it, but I don't know. Probably sound very full of myself on this podcast. You just need to always be challenged. You get really antsy really fast. I just, yeah, like very antsy, little patience for anything short of perfection, which isn't fair. (laughs) I don't think it's perfection. You need to be like very dynamic. You need, you need your role to be 25% different every year. Yeah. What's wrong with that? It's uncommon. It's not, whose role is 25% different every year, 50% different over two years? Your role doesn't change that much. It's, you know, 20% different over three years, maybe. Yeah, you grow into the role, and yeah, you do some stuff, but your job scope doesn't change that much over three years, I think. You're talking about, like, in general? Yeah, you, you need to be, like, really challenged. You get bored really easily. With with all kinds of things. And this isn't, like, a criticism. You're take it the wrong way. But with work, you get bored. With workouts, you get bored. With whatever. Like, you, you burn out on stuff in, like, eight months. Why do you think that is? Six months. I don't know. But it's true with everything you, that you, like, do. And so I think work is no different. You get really antsy. And you, you you got promoted in November, and by February of 25, you'll be antsy again. You'll be like, oh my gosh, this job is so boring. Well, well, my program will be in a much different spot, hopefully, fingers crossed, knock on wood. So I think there's a lot that's going to happen this year that will keep things very interesting. But yeah, I think come next summer, I'm going to be ready to go learn like a totally different part of the business. Yeah, if you make it that long. Which is fine. You just, you've always needed a new thing all the time. Every role at Pratt up to this point, you've not been in for like longer than a year and a half. Right? Yeah. So, like, the pattern is there. And even even in a year, you're already like, I want to get out of here. And then it takes It's a not year, that I want to get out of there. It takes a year. It takes like another six months for you to like find the next thing or for it to find you, right? Yeah, I mean, like, last summer I got to the point where I was... Like, there's a lot, and that's what, like, both my boss and another mentor, like, gave me guidance, like, feedback on is, like, how much value there is staying in a role for a long time to see a bunch of different things happen from this perspective, and I completely agree with that. I think having, like, the patience and endurance to do that is one thing, and that goes back to, like, finding other things, like you were saying before, to, like stretch yourself even within the role but I think I'm seeing that now what was I saying so this time or this past summer I was getting to a point where I was bored like I didn't feel like I was learning any new technical skills the only thing I would learn would be like shit hitting the fan basically and like how do you respond to that but I feel like that's basic it's just a different circumstance depending on where you are So I wanted to go do something different and we figured out a way to expand my scope so that I could learn new systems that were still related to like my program and my parent program. So one of the, one of the electives that you can take the spring of 2025 is entrepreneurship. I think I'm going to take it. Cool. Did any of those electives look interesting to you? 
Let me see the list again. So the electives are the summer there's mergers and acquisitions, decision modeling, negotiations, and managerial accounting. Just talk about the summer first. Decision modeling, maybe. I want to read the syllabus. And negotiations, people said, is really good. Yeah. So at least those two, I think I want to try and take a third to stay on track. So You only have to take two to stay on track. So in the summer, no. So look, in the spring of 2025, I'm going to take these three classes. Mm Mm-hmm. In the fall of 24, I'm going to take the blue classes, and then I only have to take two electives in the summer. Let's all invest. Huh? Let's all invest. Alternative investments. Where is that? Who are you taking? In the fall. Oh, yeah. I guess you're right, because it's nine, nine. I'm glad we're recording so that I can forever have you telling me that I'm right. Recorded for all eternity. It'd be even funnier when you're in class in the spring. I'm not. You're not going to do that. It's a little tempting, but not with the new role. Okay, so I'll take probably a negotiation decision modeling, depending on who teaches that one. Then in the fall, probably process analysis, Six Sigma is one class. Maybe alternative investments. I don't know. And then maybe, I don't really have much interest in global macro perspectives or multinational firms and strategy. Maybe multinational firms and strategy if Kazanjan teaches it. I don't think he does. Okay, then not the out class. I'm curious who teaches that because our company is multinational. Yeah. But not really. Kind of. I mean, you're selling the same thing, but. Yeah, but there's like overhaul and repair shops all over the place. Oh, there's more down here. Yeah, but those aren't executive. Yeah, but design thinking. People like design thinking. I might take that. It's an August class, meaning it's a... Short one. Yeah. This is where I think you could really knock out a bunch of classes. All right, and then spring would be probably advanced corporate finance. Yeah. And then tech and adaptive systems, maybe? It's kind of generic. Advanced manager, econ, mm. League with Emotional Intelligence, maybe. I don't know. I want more strategy classes. I also want more strategy classes. I've thought of, I've talked about this about how I want to maybe work in OpEx director role and then go work in strategy. I want to work in strategy too. But like capital strategy, capital uh, mod center strategy. I want to work more in like joint venture strategies that we have with. That'd be interesting. Yeah. You're going to take entrepreneurship. Yeah, I'm going to take entrepreneurship, people analytics, and advanced corporate finance. Yeah. Interesting. Or I'll talk about this independent study with Kinsangian on projects, which projects we should pursue. That's like a potential class. You already did what? No. Talk about do an independent study yeah. with Rob, and we would analyze different capex project opportunities are you gonna put them on the nda or something like that like how are you gonna deal with that yeah i can get one yeah okay so in like three words what were your takeaways from the pathway to the c-suite event i don't know let me tell me your three words you do all these brain games and you can't come up with three words no, I didn't take good notes. I didn't take notes. If I had notes, I could, like, give you something. I would say empathy, patience, and confidence. I was going to say patience. I was going to say patience, people. I don't know. Why are you so much better at empathy than I am? I don't know that I'm that empathetic, really. A lot more than you. You're, like, a two. I'm a cold, I'm like cold, a, cold-blooded killer. And I'm like a six or a seven. Like, I think the difference is I understand you need empathy to get things done. And you want to straight get, skip straight to getting things done. And I've tried that, and it's not really effective. You have to 
build bridges and relationships first and then you can go get things done and like no one loves someone who like barges in the room and demands is how things are going to be done it's the worst yeah i'm curious to see how this experience as like leading with influence will impact my next role when i have direct more direct reports salary direct reports yeah you have to work on the empathy thing it's really important but I think having like salary direct reports where their performance I'm like can judge and can guide, I think that'll help. I don't know. I, th- I think I haven't seen you like do it, but I think you're going to really like it's going to take a lot of practice. The way you present things, the tone you take, the words you pick, I think you're going to have to really work on it. I think the, you're maybe not, maybe it's more so just that I don't have a filter. I mean, I hear you talk to people on Zoom. And? Sometimes you could do some work. <laughs> like sometimes you don't care. And so you're just like direct and that's fine. Because there's times if you heard me on Zoom, you'd be like, what is this? But I think, I think you could come across more emotional and sympathetic and more inquisitive and less like. I don't know, I just think, you know, I think there's times where I'm like, that tone is not going to get it done. You know? Yeah. I think you do it because you can. You know what I mean? But you shouldn't. That's my thought. Okay, we have sufficiently lost Alexander's interest. He is walking away. So we'll leave it there. We didn't do a whiskey minute. Come back. Close out with a whiskey minute. Something good. We'll close out with a more recent. What do you have lately? Nothing. I haven't drinking that much lately. Can you give us a whiskey minute on... Alabama ABC is doing their quarterly drop in March. So could find me camping out at the ABC on the night of the, what, what's the third Saturday in March, I guess. Did we ever... Do a podcast on your experience the first time? Yeah. We talked about it. Hmm. So, so actually, that'd be fun. What's your strategy going to be this time? Go even sooner. No. I'm just kidding. I don't know how the quarterlies go. It's hard to gauge like how many slots do they have and how many good bottles. You don't know the quantities. That's the whole deal. And how many slots. I don't know if they're doing 50 or 100. It's hard to know. Probably 50, I bet. I would bet it's like 50. I'll probably go anyway. I mean, it doesn't cost anything to go camp out in the bargain lot, basically. So might as well just show up on a Friday afternoon at, like, 4 and camp. Will we be more prepared this time? Certainly. How are you going to be more prepared? Don't drink as much. <laughs> How are you going to keep from drinking as much when you're just so, sitting in a parking lot? so zooted last time. <laughs> we drank too much too fast. That was really the problem. It wasn't the quantity. It was the rate. How are you going to prevent The velocity, that? the acceleration of the whiskey was too great. I don't know, just not be so stupid. No, we'll go, we'll be more prepared. We'll see what the weather's like. Hopefully it's not hot because that's going to make camping less fun. Better gear, more pizza. You know, it's like pretty simple really. So we'll see. That should be interesting. So March, look for a, we'll do a podcast with Rip live from the, not live because whatever, but do one with Rip from the parking lot and be funny. Record it on my iPhones. Do you think if I had a baby, I'd be more empathetic? Or do you think it would go even worse in the other direction? I don't know. I didn't buy. If Here's something if, if you're in, like, whiskey, maybe. I had this thought today that Heaven Hill is being run by a bunch of morons. Ooh, say more. Mostly what they're doing with, like, Elijah Craig Barrel Proof, I think, is, like, criminal. And I think... How so? So what they're doing is I don't have a problem with them dropping the 12-year age statement from Electric Craig Barrel Proof. They dropped it. It used to be a 12-year age stated, like minimum, right? And then it was Barrel Proof, and they would do three batches a year. Now they're, they it's not a 12-year guarantee, but they put the age on the front. The problem is that this year's batch, A124, is like the lowest proof or second to lowest proof offering they've ever had. And the youngest Electric Craig Barrel Proof. And then someone did a chart of this, a tr- and, and the, like there's like a trend line. It's like the age of proof is going down hmm. for like the last three or five years or something. It's going down. 
So what they're doing is like, yeah, I get they don't have enough inventory, so they're releasing younger, younger stuff. But I think that's the wrong move. I think you keep everything between 11 and a half and 14 years. You release less amount of it and still like, why not do that? And also like people, the theory is, the working theory is that they're releasing younger, younger barrel proofs until they get down to like the eight, nine, 10 year range, which is like young because that's what the store picks are. And before you know it, all the barrel picks, all the barrel proofs will be like nine years old which is three years younger than they all used to be, and people are just going to accept it. And, and the greatest value in whiskey will not be the greatest value anymore. Previously, Logica Barrel Proof, my opinion, best value in all of whiskey. And they're going to ruin it. They're, they're totally ruining it. And they don't have to. They can just release less, let it age back up, and they're, they're making the wrong call. It's completely the wrong decision, I think. So why don't you take the entrepreneur class and then go buy them and then... No, it's expensive to buy them. You have to like, you'd have to get pulled in as like the CEO from the outside or go, you know, be work one level below and then move up. Go do that. Yeah. I don't know if there's any money in it, but I think it's, I don't know. Maybe the guy's running it smart. But How much money do you want? It's not about the money. It's about doing the right thing. And they, okay, should, so they, should, <laughs> they should understand from Buffalo Trace... The fact is that you sell more product overall if you, the stuff people want is, like, hard to get. Like, you've got a company doing that right now. They've got that playbook. is all built out. Like, it's dumb. Like, don't make your stuff uber accessible. People want it. People buy it. They sell so much barrel proof. Like, let your stuff age up. Make less Elijah Craig small batch. Like, make less. You know what I mean? It's on the shelf freaking everywhere. Create a little bit of scarcity for your product. And let your older stuff age up and have this nice, diverse portfolio. I, th- I think they're dumb. I think they're big dummies. They're saving the Elijah Craig stuff. I think that's like 12, 13 years. They're like, we'll go three more years, four more years, and we'll make it 17 years. And we can sell it for $200 a bottle. You know what I mean? And it's like, I get that maybe there's more margin there, but I think it's wrong. Who are they run by? Heaven Hill owns, owns Elijah Craig. Heaven and Hill, big Heaven dummies. Hill. Heaven Hill. Yeah, they own other stuff too. That's the title of the podcast, folks. Heaven Hill, Big Dummies. I'm going to tag them. We're going to blow up. This is our chance to make it's it big. It's at the very end. They're not even going to listen to this No, part. I'll put it in the intro. Alexander Rao, available for consulting. You know what I mean? I mean on strategy and all things whiskey. Is it the more profitable thing to do? I don't know. I don't have their numbers. But I think it's the right thing to do. I think they're ruining it. It's the long term. Your reputation is like... All you have. Like, what are we doing right now? Why would you ruin it? It's already not as good as it was. People say it's on the downswing. They released ECBP C923. People loved it. It was old. 13 years, 9 months, or whatever. And then you follow that up with the youngest release ever. Maybe you're not their target market. No, no, no. I'm the target market. (laughs) And it's wrong. Like, it. They had such a good opportunity. They captured everyone's attention. It sold out everywhere. They released limited quantities. People were hunting for it. It went up 50% on secondary. And then they threw it all away with A124. For the record, Idiots. you were snoozing the whole podcast, and then we bring up whiskey, and you're actually engaging. I was thinking about it on the car drive home, about how idiotic it is that they're doing this. I'm glad you didn't share with me, and, I wouldn't have cared. And I think their store picks are priced totally wrong. Why are your store picks priced at 85 when they're 8, eight 9 years old? But Barrel Proof is priced at 75, and it's 12 years old. Their pricing is ridiculous. You should maybe increase the price of the 12-year to, like, 80. Well, don't give them all the answers. They have to call you. The 9-year no. should be 60. Think about this. Here's the point. It's dumb. Knob Creek... Nine year, they're usually nine, nine and a half year store picks, 120 proof, 60 bucks. Elijah Craig needs a competing product. Release your store picks, 120 proof about, they're like 125, right? Make them nine years, I don't care, but they should be $60, not 85. It's all backwards. And they can do it. There's no reason they can't do it. They have the same, like, they might even, who owns Knob Creek? Heaven Hill might even own it. I don't know who owns it. Like, it's all whack. It's all completely wacko. And... It's dumb. Logic Craig 18 should also be batch proof. Like, make a batch proof and a single bar- Like, you know what I mean? Like, Knob Creek is an American brand of Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey produced by Beam Centauri. Uh, 
Knob Creek's owned by Jim Beam. That's right. Thank you. Oh. So Jim Beam owns Knob Creek and other stuff. Booker's, which is also, like, way overpriced. What are they doing with freaking Booker's? It's stupid. Why don't you just start a whiskey consulting business? No, they don't. It's not that they don't know. Someone is, like, they know they can make more money. Someone's got a spreadsheet, and they've typed it in, and they know they can make more money this way. And maybe they can over the short run. Over the short term, they can. Over the long run, you completely ruin the brand. Like, you know what I mean? It's dumb. It's very dumb, right? So, I don't know. Elijah Craig should have an 18, like 18-year shelf-stable product. Knob Creek did this, right? So watch what Knob Creek did, sort of, I think. Knob Creek had nine years, nine-year products, and then they had a 12-year, then they made a 15-year, and they made an 18-year. And what happened was, I feel like, y'all can fact-check this, but as the older stuff came out, it actually drove demand for some of the younger stuff because you couldn't always get, like, the 15s, people bought the 12, and you could buy the 12s, you bought the 9, right? And people wanted the whole lineup, right? And they're all really affordable, too. Like, 18-year is 140, Totally, totally reasonable, 100 proof, at a great proof point as well. Like, I think Elijah Craig should be doing something similar, where they're like, hey, we're going to offer, like, you can like, you get the 18 single barrels, but they're impossible to find, right? Like, a 15 doesn't exist, the 12 years of the barrel proof, and the nine years of the store picks, basically. Like, it, it really works well. And you can see it, because if you're trying to find, like, Knob Creek 12s are hard to find, 15s are impossible, 18s are tough, they're marked up to, like, 200, 180, 200. So, like, I think the the equation seems to work for Knob Creek. It should work for Elijah Craig as well. And then you should do, you should do, like, a low-proof and a high-proof version of all of it. Yeah. So, the Shapira family are the owners of Heaven Hill Distillery. Since 1935, the Shapira family has been at the helm of the largest family-owned and operated distillery in America. Family-owned. See? They don't know what they're doing. You think Campari would make that mistake? Wild Turkey's not doing that. Who's Campari? Campari owns Wild Turkey, I think. They're like a big... The same thing as Campari, like the drink? Like the liqueur? I think so. Nice. Maybe. But so Wild Turkey's doing this, right? So Wild Turkey... Here's the equation. Once again, we're going to let it play out. So Wild Turkey does 10-year, right? And then they do do like 9-year picks, right? Then they do a 13. And you can't buy it. It's unobtainable. right? It's 150 bucks and no one can find it. They probably aren't making that much, but also you can't find it. Now they're going to do a 15-year. And what do you think that's going to do to the 13 and everything below it? It's like, it's going to be impossible to find. They're selling single Rick houses for $300. Like, it's crazy. Current president Max Shapiro will be assuming a new role of executive chairman since joining the company in 2001. How... When oh, did he get promoted? Okay. Uh, oh, what? Yeah. Kate and Alan have been transformational leaders in driving Heaven Hill's accelerated growth. Oh. So you got a bone to pick with Kate and Alan. Tell them how big Dum Dum they are. How long have they been in the role? Enough to have it up. This is the I just don't get it. Like let your stocks. What like what? What you have I think to offer is like aged product, and when you sell it low proof and underaged, you're like throwing away all that opportunity. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You're, you're, I just don't get it. Like, people will pay a premium for age stuff. Like, Kate, don't. Oh, here's the problem. Here we go. Kate and Alan. Yep. Co-presidents. Oh, not good. It's like, sibling co-presidents? I don't know if they're siblings. Yeah. That's, see what I'm saying? It's just annoying. Kate Lax is Max's donor and her husband, Alan, husband, wife, co-presidents. That's for the record, if we ever own a company... Like, what are we doing? We would not be co-presidents. Like, what are we doing? Oh, this is BS. After completing their undergraduate and MBA degrees at Duke University, Kate and Alan then joined Procter & Gamble with careers in marketing and finance, respectively. Today, Kate leads the company's marketing and brand management functions as chief marketing officer. Alan serves as chief, chief operating officer, oversees operations, the company's corporate functions, strategy, and the newly acquired... Yeah, I just think it's the wrong call. I think that that there are, I don't know. Okay, well, they know where to find us. I'll give you more thoughts, but 
yeah, I think, I think uh, silly and make less small batch, make what the people want, make the old stuff, make it high proof. I'm trying to think if I have any other Jim, Jim Beam uh, feedback. That's mostly it. Logic Craig's the only Jim Beam thing I think I'd drink really. I think if we ever owned a company, I'd just ask you to do my finances. I don't know about company finances. I just know, make the people what they want. Like no one want, not nobody, but like. You have no patience to entertain any goals and dreams of mine. Uh, I mean, I'll entertain them, I guess, but. Anyway, mark my words. We'll check back in three years and Heaven Hill will have destroyed the Elijah Craig brand further than it's already fallen. It was so great. That's it. That's a pod.